Have you ever wondered what it's like to perform an autopsy? Ever wanted to know how accurate your favorite crime drama is? If you're brave enough, join, join us Inside, inside the, the Morgue. and welcome back to Inside the Morgue. We're your hosts, Jess and Alice. This episode is part two of Autopsy of Jane Doe to finish up our two-part episode for this movie. If you haven't listened to part one yet, go do that. And for those who have seen this movie before and you know the ending, you know it's insanely spooky. Again, I'm sorry for how many times we're going to say spooky throughout this episode. We're using synonyms this time around. <laughs> I, yeah, I bought a thesaurus. No, I didn't actually. I just used Google. <laughs> and we do have a super interesting true crime story that ties into this movie. You know, we love digging into weird stories like that. So let's get right into part two. So, we left off last time with Coroner Tommy and his son Austin uncovering some odd things at the autopsy of Jane Doe. All internal injuries appeared to be indicative of some kind of ritual human sacrifice. However, externally, there were no obvious signs of trauma and no lividity. And just a reminder for anyone that may not remember, lividity or liver mortis is the way that blood pools in the body after death. So it can indicate the position a body was left in and it creates a purplish red pattern. So say if a person died lying on their back, if the body stayed in that position for a few hours, the blood would pool on their back and you'd get a purplish reddish pattern on their back, back of their arms, back of their legs, depending on the body's position. So right as Austin and Tommy realize there's something ominous going on with this Jane Doe, the radio in their autopsy suite is reporting that serious weather is occurring in their state with a flash flood warning in their county. Tommy remarks how you can't cause these kinds of internal injuries without leaving a trace on the outside, which is odd because Jane Doe doesn't even have a broken nail. Austin is focused on the whys and wants to know why this woman was tortured. Tommy responds by saying, quote, down here, if you can't see it or touch it, it doesn't matter. Austin says that the bodies can't just be CODs and there has to be a reason behind what happened to this Jane Doe. The radio in the background continues to give a severe weather warning, ending abruptly with saying, one thing is for sure, you're not going anywhere, right before cutting out. The station then changes on its own to play a creepy song. I was so weirded out at this part. I My blood ran cold. If this happened to us, I would be running for uh, the hills. Yeah, I would have been out of that morgue so fast. Jess, don't use this against me, but that would be a really funny way to prank me if you're like playing music in the morgue one day and you just like set up like a really creepy song to like <laughs> cut in on our Bluetooth speaker. I would just run. I should really do. I should really find this song, add it to one of my many playlists, and play along when it suddenly pops up. I'm playing along. Like, what is happening? (laughs) I would. I would leave. (laughs) You shouldn't have told me this. I have to do it now. I know. I regret it. I regret it. So the song starts out with, Mommy told me something a little girl should know. It's all about the devil, and I've learned to hate him so. I would sing it for you guys, but you really don't want that. Austin is starting to realize that there's something supernatural going on, and he turns to tell his dad, Tommy, that he thinks they should end the exam and get out of here. I agree, Austin. I totally agree. He has been the only logical one this entire movie. Right? Except for when he went to go investigate the noise in oh, the hallway. Well, yeah, that's true. That was the one time. But he, he made that mistake once and he learned from it. This is his redemption. So the creepy song continues to say, He will never ever leave you if your heart is filled with gloom. So let the sun shine in, face it with a grin. 
And Tommy is too focused on the autopsy to realize all the spooky things going on around them. He is reflecting back the top layer of skin on the Jane Doe when he notices something odd. Well, another something odd, because this whole exam has just been odd. One odd thing after the other. On the inside of her skin are similar ritualistic sketches similar to the ones on the cloth that was found inside her stomach. My only red flag here is that the skin doesn't exactly just peel away like they did. How they did it reminded me of how you'd peel like an orange. And it just not exactly like that. And there's different layers to your skin, the subcutaneous layer being the deepest layer. And you can cut the skin away from muscle, but it doesn't just peel away how they did here. Anyway, the creepy song continues in the background as a body cooler door slowly creaks open. All the lights in the morgue then suddenly explode overhead, and left in the dark, Austin uses his phone as a flashlight and frantically looks around the dark morgue for his dad. He sees all the body cooler drawers are open, but all the bodies are gone. Tommy also sees this and is finally on the same page as Austin and says, let's get the F out of here. It's about time. It took him this long to realize that. (laughs) They make their way out of the dark morgue. And the generator kicks on, which keeps the lights in the hallway on, but very dimly. However, the elevator isn't working. Of course. Why? Of course. Why would it? Because, like, what else would you expect? Why would it in a scary movie? Th- then again, they don't know they're in a that scary movie. That would be movie. a major fourth wall break. <laughs> I do. But they go to try to open the cellar door to let them outside, but uh, Tommy realizes it is stuck. He calls Austin to help him try to push it open. And they try to push it open as much as they can, and they see a storm raging outside and that a fallen tree is on top of the cellar door, preventing them from opening it all the way. Austin is trying to get cell service, but to no avail, so they head to the office in an attempt to use the landline to call for help. They slowly and carefully make their way down the dimly lit Moore hallway, where they hear thumping at the end of the hall. So they eventually sprint into the office and close the door behind them. Once again, good move. And the landline is surprisingly working, so they call the sheriff's department. And they get through, but the connection is very staticky from the storm. The sheriff can barely hear Tommy. Eventually, the connection is entirely lost. So Tommy hangs up the phone, and then they hear a bell ringing from the hallway. And remember from last episode, Tommy described himself as an old-school coroner who tied bells around the decedent's ankles like they did in, like, the 19th century, when the chances were much higher that a person might be buried alive. So we forgot to mention this during our last episode, but we actually do kind of have something similar to how Tommy was doing it in the movie here. We have a bell on our cooler door, so kind of little homage there to way back when. But if that, if the cooler door ever opened and we heard that bell and I knew that you were in your office and everybody else was up front, I would be so gone. Gone. Yep. Yeah. You'd never see me again in that (laughs) work. So the ringing continues and they slowly make their way towards the office door. Austin gets down on the floor and peeks under the crack at the bottom of the door to see a foot with a toe tag on it step in front of the door. So he jolts up. And they see a shadow of someone standing in front of the door. There is then violent banging on the door, so Tommy and Austin barricade the door with a dresser. The banging suddenly stops then, and Austin says that everything that is happening has to do with their Jane Doe, because everything was totally fine until Sheriff Burke had wheeled her in and they had started the autopsy. Tommy says, you're talking about a corpse. And I just still can't believe that this man doesn't believe there's something I really thought he was coming to right? his senses here. He just, he just saw the empty cooler and a dead person try to break into their office. And he's just very much in denial. 
So the cut on Tommy's arm from earlier when he caught himself on a rib bone during the autopsy had opened up again while they were trying to barricade the door, so he goes into the office bathroom to clean up. Austin continues to list the evidence that something demonic is going on, noting all the odd things that they found inside Jane Doe, all her internal injuries, and all the markings on the inside of her skin. Tommy is in the bathroom at the sink cleaning up his injury when he notices a shuffling behind the shower curtain. Austin turns to see his dad going to open the shower curtain, and there's nothing there. Or so it seems. Just when they breathe a sigh of relief that there is nothing behind the curtain, something unseen violently yanks Tommy back as he screams and the bathroom door slams shut. Austin runs over and tries to pry open the bathroom door. The door is not budging at first, no matter how hard he tries to slam into it, but eventually it opens on its own and Austin finds his dad lying in pain on the floor. He hears the office door creak open as well and goes to look, but he rushes back to his dad on the floor. They lift up Tommy's shirt to see extensive bruising on his right side. He also had an injury on his head. Austin helps Tommy up and gets the first aid kit to take care of all of his injuries. While they are doing this, Tommy says, They were gray. Her eyes. It had her eyes. I seriously cannot believe that this man is still in denial. Come on. Telling Austin that it's not possible when he just had an encounter. But Austin says that whatever the hell is going on, they are way past possible and it has to be Jane Doe. Tommy finally believes and asks Austin what they should do. They go into the hall and see a bloody cloth on the floor. This is the same bloody cloth that we saw on the face of the body that they showed his girlfriend Emma at the beginning of the movie. Austin goes to pick it up. But like, why? Why are you going to go pick up this bloody cloth? Why? Why? What's the point? How is this going to help you, Austin? He drops it quickly and they slowly make their way back to the autopsy suite. All of the lights are still out and Jane Doe is on the autopsy table where they left her. Tommy shines a flashlight on the bowl with her organs inside and notices that they are in rapid decomp. A little more in-depth about the timeline of decomposition, autolysis begins immediately after death since there's no longer any blood circulating through the body and the respiration stopped because there's no oxygen moving through either. At around 24 to 72 hours after death, the internal organs will begin to decompose. Around three to five days after death, the body starts to bloat and blood containing foam will start to leak from the mouth or the nose. And at around eight to ten days after death, the body turns from a green color to a reddish color as the blood decomposes and the organs in the abdominal cavity accumulate gas. And your brain is actually the first part of the body that begins to break down after death because the cells here start to collapse and they release water. And then the very last organs to actually decompose are your uterus or prostate. So Austin thinks that maybe, maybe her body was somehow preserving the organs. So then they were removed, they decomposed rapidly. I, if this happened to us, I don't know. I would be so. I, I don't know how I would react. Like we take them out, we put them on the table, like, oh, these lungs are really pink. We turn back. If after suddenly, like, a split like I second. took out someone's fresh organs and then I put them on the table and I turned around and they were and suddenly decomposing. Suddenly black. Yeah, you're like, what's that smell? And you turn around. <laughs> it's like suddenly it's decomposing before your eyes. Tommy says they have to get her to the crematorium, thinking that if they destroy the body, everything will go back to normal. They go to wheel the body out when the autopsy suite door shuts on its own. Austin runs over to open it, but it's locked and they can't get out. Austin gets an X and tries to break the door down when he suddenly hears footsteps in the hall and looks through the hole he just axed in the door, and naturally there's a horrifying face that pops right up on the other side. It looks like one of the faces of the bodies that they had in the cooler that we saw at the beginning of the movie, with its eyes and mouth sewn shut. He handled this jump scare 
way better than us. I knew a jump scare was coming and I still jumped. I've seen this movie before and I still jumped. He he really was just like, oh, this is happening. I see it now. He like literally just slowly backs away. He's <laughs> just like, oh, no, not again. I yeah, I fully jumped. So Austin slowly backs away from the door, but then he goes over again and sees the same face, which then screams through its sewn shut lips. Uh, Austin's finally had enough of this, and he grabs a can of flammable liquid and douses Jane Doe in it. Tommy pulls a book of matches out of his pocket, and he tosses the whole lit matchbook onto Jane Doe. Flames erupt all around the body, and then the flames suddenly get out of control, and they shoot upwards, engulfing the ceiling, and then lighting all of the other things in the autopsy suite on fire, including the photos from the autopsy and the video camera that recorded the whole autopsy. Austin gets the fire extinguisher, and as they put out the fire around the autopsy suite, the fire around Jane Doe's body dies down as well. This body is somehow unmarked and doesn't appear to be burned at all. Just then, they hear the elevator in the hall. Austin picks up the axe, and they're now able to open the door, and they make their way out. The elevator dings, and they rush towards it to try to get in, but just miss it as the doors close. Of course that would happen in this spooky movie. They then hear bells ringing down the other end of the hall. They see a figure approaching them as they are waiting for the elevator door. Tommy grabs the axe from Austin as this figure slowly approaches. The elevator is finally arriving, and Austin tries to pry the doors open so they can get on quicker. He gets the doors open, grabs his dad, and pulls him in. Of course, just their luck. As they get in, the doors won't close, and the power is out again. So this elevator is not working. It all went wrong! (laughs) The ringing bell sounds like it's getting nearer as they frantically try to push the elevator button to get upstairs. Realizing that this is futile, Tommy pushes Austin away from the doors and stands ready with the axe. We see the corpse walking closer, and with a flash of lightning, it is the man who had been shot point-blank in the face with a shotgun. Because this podcast is called Inside the Morgue, and you guys are here for the gory details, we had to throw in some of our experiences with shotgun wounds, and these are definitely the more gruesome types of gunshot wounds that we see, just with the amount of pressure and force from the gun alone. This makes the pellets scatter as they travel, and a close-range shotgun wound is almost as destructive as a shot from a high-velocity rifle. And these are definitely the more serious types of injuries, because mainly buckshots are used and they are way bigger than birdshots. And these types of gunshot wounds leave the face basically gone and unrecognizable. Like, I remember the first time I saw a self-inflicted gunshot wound and it was from a shotgun. And you just look at the face and you're like, I, how, how was this once a face? It's kind of disturbing to see. Yeah, they're really not great. They do the most destruction, yeah. Tommy lunges at the zombie corpse with the axe, hitting it in the neck, but plot twist, and I seriously absolutely hated this part of the movie, they hear Uh. groaning on the ground that sounds like a woman. Oh, my heart hurts. (laughs) Austin looks out of the elevator door and pries his way out. The person that Tommy hit with the axe was not, in fact, a walking zombie, but it was Austin's girlfriend, Emma. I hate these kind of plot twists in scary movies. Where you think, like, oh, I'm going to get the killer, and then you hurt someone innocent. It's, no. She must have come back to get Austin for their midnight movie date. He rushes over to her, but her injuries are way too severe, and she dies on the floor. Cue me crying like a baby here. I was so sad. I was not expecting it, because they saw this walking zombie, and then suddenly it's Emma. sobbing. Absolutely sobbing. Tommy looks over, horrified at what he had done. He's struggling for words to explain himself to comfort Austin as he's wailing on the floor over her body. 
The elevator starts working again, and Tommy tries to get his son up into the elevator. The power goes out as the elevator starts going upstairs, leaving Austin and Tommy trapped in there. They sit on the floor. Austin is in a daze, and Tommy's grunting in pain as he lifts his shirt to show more extensive bruising on his side from his attack earlier. Austin feels guilty for Emma's death because he's the one who told her to come back so they could go on their late-night date. Tommy tells him he didn't do this, and he shouldn't have been there. He takes all of the blame for it, but Austin tells him he couldn't have known that this would happen. So Tommy starts talking about his late wife, Austin's mom, and how he called her a ray of sunshine and didn't realize she was struggling with depression because she always just seemed so bright and cheerful, and that if he had known what she was going through, he would have done anything he could to have helped her. Tommy blames himself for not realizing the pain that his wife was in, and that she felt like she had to deal with the pain alone. And... We just wanted to take a minute to say that we take mental health struggles very seriously. And if you or a loved one are struggling with depression or suicidal thoughts, there are many resources and trained professionals who are there to help you, such as just this is just one example. There's something called the 988 crisis hotline, and you can call or even text them if you're not comfortable with calling at any time 24-7. And I'll include a link to their website in our show notes. We'll also include some other resources, but there is help out there. We love you guys, and we love your loved ones, so if you need help, please reach out. So Tommy goes on to say he feels guilty that Austin had to pay for his mistakes. We then cut to a scene of Jane Doe motionless on the autopsy table, and then suddenly the crematorium flame lights up in the other room. Back in the elevator, Austin asks Tommy why Jane Doe hasn't killed them yet. With everything they have seen her able to do, if she had wanted them dead, they should be dead by now. Austin then notes that when they started the autopsy, when they cut into her, she tried to stop them each time, as if there was something she didn't want them to find. We cut to the crematorium incinerator door flying open and flames bursting out. In the elevator, Tommy thinks it's crazy that Austin is suggesting that they go back to finish the autopsy, but Austin is confident that if they figure out how Jane Doe died, they can bring an end to all of this. They pry open the elevator doors and hop out into the morgue hallway. Tommy covers Emma's body with his coat as they pass by. They make their way back to the autopsy room, and the hallway is filled with smoke from the crematorium. They get separated in the smoke, and Tommy turns around looking for Austin and is attacked by yet another walking corpse. Austin hears him cry out, but can't find him in all the smoke. And he eventually finds him, and the corpse that was attacking Tommy just disappears. Austin helps Tommy up, and they make their way into the autopsy suite. They shut themselves inside and barricade the doors. Another great idea. Well, maybe not barricading yourself in there with the Jane Doe. I would have barricaded myself somewhere else. (laughs) Anywhere else. Outside. Well, they did try to get outside. Yeah, I don't know if I would have wanted to be barricaded inside the room with the thing trying to kill me. They turn on the surgical overhead lights, which I guess were the only lights in the autopsy suite that were unaffected when the lights exploded. I love when movies make sense like that. We We love movie sense. Austin starts the head exam on Jane Doe. He starts with using a scalpel to make an incision behind one ear and cuts across the back of the head to behind the other ear. So we'll give a green flag. This is how we start a head examination. And we'll do that same incision, reflect the scalp up, which will reveal the top of the skull, aka the calvarium. He grabs his bone saw, which is another green flag. We use the bone saw to cut the top of the skull off when taking out the brains during autopsy. In this scene, they use the bone saw and then they were able to just kind of like gently remove the top of the skull. And this isn't quite what it's like in real life. And there are other tools that we use. So we start with cutting the bone with the bone saw. And once we cut all the way through the top of the skull, we get what we call like a skull breaker, which is essentially a chisel. 
and you insert it into one of the areas of the bone that we have just cut, and then you kind of twist it. You twist it, and you crank it. Yeah, it makes like a popping noise, and it'll like separate the top of the skull from the rest of the head. And there is a loud like popping or crunching sound when we do this, and then we kind of just like peel the top of the skull away from the brain, and we leave the dura attached to the brain, and this is, it has kind of the same sound as Velcro. There's definitely lots of sounds going on at this point of the autopsy. There's so many sounds at this part. This is the noisiest part of the autopsy. This is definitely the part that a lot of people get really uneasy at. Yeah, that's like I said last episode, it's one of the things I warn people about if they're coming to Shadow for the first time. I'm like, hey. Yeah, new interns, we definitely warn them about the bone saw before we turn it on. It's not It's not everybody's favorite part. One of our transporters, actually, he he's this really big guy and he's awesome. And sometimes he'll come in and observe our autopsies. And at the part where we get to the head, he goes, all right, I'm out. Bye. Yeah. He has a really strong stomach, but he he will never deny it. He's like, nah, I hate the bone saw. He really hates the sound. I think when I first met him and like one of the first things he told me was that he's like, oh, I hate that bone saw. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I was like, oh, no. <laughs> so your dura or your dura mater, which literally means tough mother, is one of the layers of the connective tissue that make up the meninges of the brain. It is the outermost layer of the three meninges that surround and protect your brain and spinal cord. And in basic term, it's a flap of tissue that sits between the skull and the brain. The other two meninges include the arachnoid mater and the pia mater, and the arachnoid mater is the middle layer, and it doesn't contain any blood vessels or nerves, and the pia mater is the inner layer and is the only layer that clings tightly to the brain. Back in the movie, he gently takes the skull cap off with the dura mater, I'm assuming, on the skull cap because the brain doesn't have any dura on it. When we see it, we just see the brain, the, like naked brain. Austin says that the brain looks normal. They cut a section of the brain and put it in a Petri dish. And Tommy says there has to be something because all her other organs were scarred and her brain was not. They replace the skull cap and pull her scalp back into place. Austin takes the section of the brain over to the microscope. He is shocked about something. And Tommy comes over to take a look for himself. It appears that Jane Doe's brain tissue is active. Like, what? This should definitely not be happening. Yeah, she has been fully autopsy. So real talk here, under the microscope, a necrotic or dead area of tissue would appear as a structuralist collection of fragmented cells, and it would also show amorphous granular debris enclosed within a distinctive inflammatory border. Dead tissue also appears darker in color than living tissue, and living cells can be seen moving when you look at them under a microscope. So Tommy says that's why they couldn't find a cause of death, because Jane Doe is somehow still alive. And no, oh my god, stop it. Austin doesn't think that this is possible. They literally just lit her on fire a few minutes ago, and they have, like we just stated, performed an entire autopsy on her. How could she still be alive after all that? Tommy says that there has to be some kind of energy that is keeping her going because her brain is somehow still active. Austin goes back to the cloth that they had found in her stomach, and he kind of folds it over on itself, and it reveals that it says Leviticus 2027. So Tommy grabs a Bible that he just happened to have in the autopsy suite. I was talking to Alice the other day when we were going over our notes for this episode, and I was like, oh, this is this like a hotels there's just bibles and all (laughs) all the autopsy suites i'm gonna check every drawer of the autopsy suite at work next week and just be like bible bible (laughs) so tommy looks up the verse in the bible and austin sees roman numerals on the cloth as well and he concludes that it must be a date the year 1693 
Tommy finds the Bible verse and it reads, Any man or woman who consults the spirits of the dead shall be put to death, for they are, wait for it, a witch. Big reveal. (laughs) Austin interrupts to connect all the clues that they have found about Jane Doe so far. The cloth is from the 17th century. There was evidence from the peat and the flour in her stomach that she was from the Northeast, likely New England. So this means that she was from, you guessed it, the Salem Witch Trials. Tommy is still in disbelief, saying that witches are a myth. I really love that this man, who's been attacked by multiple walking corpses during the movie, and yet he still doesn't believe in the supernatural. Witches is where he draws the line. Witches is where he draws that strict line. He believes in everything else, but witches, nope. Absolutely not. So he goes on to say that there were no actual witches in Salem. All the victims of the trials were kids, young girls, who were all innocent and victims to hysteria. He says, though, that Jane Doe seems different from other victims of witch trials because she wasn't hanged or burned at the stake. She was tortured mercilessly. He theorizes that whatever ritual they had attempted to perform on her when she died, since it had been performed on an innocent girl, they accidentally created the very thing they were trying to destroy, a witch. He thinks everything they did to her that she could feel and then suggests that everything that they have done to her at the autopsy, she could feel as well. I got really in my head at this moment of the movie, and I was thinking about the people that come through our office that we do autopsies on, and then I was going down nope. a spiral for a minute. Don't like that. Don't like that. So she wants them to feel her pain, which explains Tommy's extensive bruising and injuries so far, and that's why she's been keeping them alive. It's her revenge. It's her ritual. They have just been in her path, just like the Douglases who were the victims at the beginning of the movie. Someone who survived Jane Doe's ritual in the past tried to get rid of her, burying her as far away as possible, but it didn't stop her because no one got close enough to see what they had done. She's still suffering. Just then, there's a violent banging outside the autopsy room door. Austin runs over to hold the door shut. Tommy appears to have realized something about Jane Doe's ritual. It won't stop until someone else experiences all of Jane Doe's suffering and injuries. He looks at Jane Doe and whispers to her that he won't fight her and begs her not to hurt Austin. Tommy wants to help her. He then groans out in pain and Austin rushes over. Tommy's wrists and ankles break and he screams out in agony. As Tommy suffers these injuries, we see Jane Doe's injuries are healing. Her Y incision even begins to close up by itself. Tommy continues to scream as he suffers all of Jane Doe's injuries. He even exhales smoke as Jane Doe's blackened lungs appear to heal. Austin holds his dad as he lays on the ground. He looks at Tommy and sees that his eyes are clouding over, just like Jane Doe's, and her eyes are going back to her natural brown color. Tommy reaches for a scalpel on the floor and begs Austin to grab it for him. Austin, crying, stabs his father and ends his suffering. Again, cue me crying on the bathroom floor. I was literally crying watching this movie. Like, from the part when Emma dies until now, I was just crying. Yeah. The lights then turn back on in the autopsy suite, the cooler doors are closed, and the radio begins to play again. Austin then hears the sheriff outside calling from upstairs. The sheriff is cutting the tree that was blocking the cellar door entry, and Austin approaches. The sheriff calls out to open up the cellar door now that they can get the tree out of the way, but Austin still can't get out. It's still stuck. The sheriff keeps yelling, open up, over and over again, and eventually starts singing the creepy song that was playing on the radio earlier. Open up your heart and let the sun shine in. I was really creeped out at this part, too. In reality, Sheriff Burke wasn't outside. I I know I just said 
my least favorite thing in scary movies is when they accidentally like kill someone innocent when they think they killed someone bad. This is also my least favorite. It's such a mind game in horror movies when it's like, oh, you think they're saved, and it's like, nope. Austin hears a bell ringing below and looks down from the steps that he's standing on. He turns around and his dad's body is staring at him. He jumps back in shock and falls over the railing, dying on impact as he hits the ground. The nightmare seems to be over for real now, and the real sheriff is at Austin and Tommy's house, taking photos of the crime scene similar to the beginning. The bodies are back in the cooler wall and the lights are back on. They are just as baffled as they were with the first scene. An investigator starts to look at Tommy and Austin and says that they must be responsible for the murders, but Sheriff Burke insists that he's known the family for 20 years, so whatever it looks like, that isn't it. It's not that simple. One of the other deputies asks what they should do with Jane Doe's body, and Burke says to transport her out of the county. Thank you. Again, the only other logical person in this movie. He looks at the body diagram on the chalkboard that has all the information about Jane Doe's autopsy. The radio in the background said it's going to be another beautiful day, and it's going to be the fourth day of sunshine. So all of that crazy weather in the house and the storm last night was all Jane Doe's doing. We see her on the autopsy table, her Y incision is completely gone, and it looks like she hasn't even had an autopsy done yet. <gasps> but her eyes have returned to cloudy gray. They put Jane Doe's body in a transport vehicle, mm -hmm. and as the transporter is driving her, the radio station changes to play the Let the Sunshine End song. The camera pans back to Jane Doe on the gurney in the back of the truck. I also really hated this part of the movie because that as they're panning back, it's just her head that you see in the body bag. <laughs> I didn't even think of that. that was, that's so creepy. So yeah, in reality, the whole body bag would have been closed. That was really creepy. And then we get a shot of her feet with a toe tag on it. And one of her toes twitches and a little bell rings in the background. And that's how this insane movie ends. I didn't even think that like she wasn't even in a body bag. She just had a sheet on her. Oh, right, right. She had see, a uh, sheet over her. You see them take Tommy and Austin's body out, and they, they're in body bags. They were. But why was she not? I don't understand it. <laughs> I was texting Jess about this last night. We were talking about the crazy craziness of this movie, and the part when Tommy is reaching for the scalpel and pleading with Austin, and I, it just clicked for me like the other night. He was asking Tommy to finish the ritual, or not, he was Tommy. He was asking Austin to finish the ritual and use the scalpel to cut out his tongue. But Austin misunderstood and killed Tommy instead to put him out of his misery. Yeah. It's like they, he was so close to completing the ritual. He just needed his tongue cut out, which I, I, I am kind of relieved we didn't have to watch that because I don't think I would have wanted to watch Austin cut out Tommy's tongue or Tommy cut out his own tongue. I don't think he could have, though, because his wrists were broken. So Austin would have Yeah, that would have been a little disgusting. Yeah, I think if his tongue had been cut out, the ritual would have been completed and maybe Austin would have lived. But I don't know what would have happened to Jane Doe. I don't know if she would have just been like a normal body. I wonder that if he did complete the ritual, would Jane Doe have come back to life? Or would her body kind of been put at rest and she could now like, right? move on and be at peace? I don't know. She would have been able to like rest peacefully Would Tommy now have died? Would he have lived through all of those injuries? Ritual? I don't know. But someone, they said someone had survived Jane Doe before and hid her body far away. And that's how she ended up buried in that person's basement. Yeah, yeah. I need, like, a prequel. I need the storyline on how they did it and what happened to them. But somebody hid Jane Doe's body, and, you know, I want a prequel about that person. I want to know. I want to know how. <laughs> and I know I was acting like this movie... I mean, this movie was freaky, but I loved it. This is a really great movie. 
It was really well was done, really especially good. the autopsy scenes. Highly recommend. And so naturally, we had to talk about the Salem Witch Trials this episode. The Salem Witch Trials took place between 1692 and 1693 in Salem in the province of Massachusetts Bay. They began in January 1692 when a group of girls began behaving oddly and a doctor stated that he believed that they were bewitched. I love that the only logical explanation of these girls acting out is that they have to be witches. They are witches. If I men can't... find out, we can shapeshift. I... They're going to tell the church. <laughs> They're going to tell the church. I love that video. <laughs> I love that you just quoted that. Amazing. I just can't believe that, like, a doctor, that was his diagnosis. It's probably hormones. Nope, nope. They're, no, they're, they're a not. witch. Oh, you know, those women, those girls being witches. So the girls that were uh, diagnosed with being bewitched accused a local slave named Tichuba and two other women of bewitching them. Tichuba worked in the household of Samuel Paris, who was a minister and whose daughters were two of the girls who were, quote, bewitched. When Tichuba came before authorities with the other women accused in March of 1692, she claimed that the devil had come to her and bid her to serve him. She also alluded that there may be other witches in Salem. So this caused a panic among the Puritan colonists, thus beginning a witch hunt. The Puritans followed strict religious and societal rules in their colony, and they were hostile towards others who did not follow their ways. So this led to many of the accused witches being outspoken women, Quakers, slaves, colonists with criminal backgrounds or prior witchcraft accusations, or colonists who openly criticized the witch trials. There were 20 people executed in the Salem witch trials, 19 were hanged, and one was tortured. Which brings us to an interesting fact. It's commonly said or believed that witches during the witch trials in America were burned at the stake. However, the victims in the U.S. were never actually burned. And don't get us wrong, they were still treated and murdered horribly. However, the common notion that they were burned at the stake is not true. People accused of witchcraft in other countries were burned at the stake, but not in the U.S. So it's believed that the myth that those accused of witchcraft in the States were burned at the stake is believed to have been inspired by European witch trials, where fire was a commonly disturbing practice used to kill, quote, witches. So what you're saying is, Hocus Pocus really wasn't that far off when the sisters were hanged. Hocus Pocus is a historical documentary. (laughs) (laughs) Hocus Pocus is I stand by that. Hocus Pocus, got it right. Green flag for Hocus Pocus. (laughs) The victims of the hysteria in Salem, who were found guilty of witchcraft and executed by hanging, were Bridget Bishop, Sarah Good, Elizabeth Howe, Susanna Martin, Rebecca Nurse, Sarah Wilds, Reverend George Burroughs, Martha Carrier, John Willard, George Jacobs Sr., John Proctor, Alice Parker, Mary Parker, Anne Pudidor, Wilmot Red, Margaret Scott, Samuel Wardell, Martha Corey, and Mary Eastie. There was another victim who was not hanged, but instead tortured to death, and his name was Giles Corey. Giles was one of six men executed in the Salem Witch Trials, and Giles was, quote, pressed to death with stones for refusing to put himself on the country, or in other words, for refusing to stand trial. Giles Corey's emigrated from England to Salem in 1659 and became a prosperous farmer. He was a member of the village church and had close ties to the Porter faction in the village. However, his reputation and, quote, scandalous life probably had an impact on the accusations of witchcraft. He had multiple run-ins with the law and in 1675 was found guilty of murder and charged a substantial fine after pummeling and killing a farm worker named Jacob Goodale. He was found guilty of murder and just charged a fine. 
I want to know what his find was. The 1600s were wild. So by the time of the witch trials in 1692, Giles was 80 years old and married to his third wife, Martha Corey, who was another victim accused of witchcraft and executed by hanging. For reasons unknown, Giles testified in the trial against his own wife. He wasn't accused of witchcraft yet. What a loser. And just of his own accord, I think, I'm assuming, testified against his wife. That didn't really work out in his favor if he was then accused of being a witch. She should have divorced him. Right. He did. Okay. So he did later try to recant his deposition. And this actually probably counted against him in his own accusations that he was a witch because it was viewed as perjury, which was very frowned upon. When Giles was accused officially of witchcraft in April 1692, there were two main accusations, one from Abigail Hobbs, who during her own confession of witchcraft named Giles and Martha Corey as fellow witches, and another accusation from Ezekiel Chevers and John Putnam Jr. It is believed by historians that the Putnam family took advantage of the mass hysteria of the trials to accuse rival neighbors and other colonists that did not share their beliefs of witchcraft as the family's own form of revenge. So that's, that's dark. When Giles went to trial, he pleaded not guilty and refused to be put on trial because of his contempt of the court. He did not want to put himself before a jury that was already convinced of his guilt. Because Giles refused to speak, he was put to death in a more grisly way than the others accused of witchcraft. He was pressed to death, which was actually illegal in Massachusetts for two reasons. There was no law permitting pressing, and it violated the Puritan provisions of the Body of Liberties regarding barbarous punishments. In all of U.S. history, Giles Corey is the only person pressed to death by order of the court. So pressing is kind of just what it sounds like. Weight is pressed onto a person's torso until they are suffocated or crushed to death. Giles was pressed to death in a field next to the jail in Salem in September 1692. It is cited that Giles' final words were, quote, more weight, perhaps a plea to add more weight as to speed up the torturous process of pressing and killing him quicker. Giles eventually died at the end of two days of being pressed. In my mind, I hear him being like, more weight, like being a savage and sarcastic, making fun of them. No. It's definitely not how it happened, but in my mind, that's how I picture it. He's just like mocking them. He's like, oh, is this all you got? This is nothing. (laughs) Oh, no. It has been speculated that the publicity of Giles Corey's death by pressing may have helped build public opposition to the witch trials because it was so gruesome. So we got our information on the Salem Witch Trials from a History of Massachusetts article titled The Salem Witch Trial Victims, Who Were They? by Rebecca Beatrice Brooks, a Smithsonian Magazine article titled Unraveling the Many Mysteries of Tichiba, the Star Witness of the Salem Witch Trials by Stacey Schiff, a History.com article titled Were Witches Burned at the Stake During the Salem Witch Trials by Evan Andrews, and a Salem Witch Trials documentary archive and transcription project article titled Giles Corey by Heather Snyder. All of these will be linked in our show notes if you want to learn more. Dude, the 19th century was really a wild time. Yeah, this was technically the 17th century, but yes. Oh, dude, the 17th (laughs) century was really a wild time. No, the 19th was too, though. (laughs) We had doctors just diagnosing people with witchcraft or like being bewitched. I feel like the whole Salem witch trials was people just not being complacent and the officials were trying to keep them in line, so they were just accusing everyone of being witches. You're a witch. It's also a whole religious thing, too, with the Puritans. Yeah, it was definitely the Puritans who were like, oh, you don't believe what we believe? You must be a witch. You must be a witch. Only only reason behind it. I love how... 
people who were like openly opposed to the witch trials were accused of witchcraft. It's like, hey, I think this is wrong. You know why you think it's wrong? Only a witch would think this is wrong. That's why you're a witch. And only when poor Giles Corey was crushed to death, people were like, oh. <laughs> They're like, maybe this is not what we maybe should be this doing. Is wrong. This isn't too much. It took that much. Crazy. I never, I also, I didn't realize how many men were also no, me neither. Like, executed for witchcraft. I know it was still mostly women. Yeah, he, Giles was accused of being a wizard, actually. A wizard. Tech- oh, yeah, sorry. I said You're witch a wizard, that whole Giles. Thing. You're a wizard, Giles. But, yeah, there were six. Yeah, I didn't realize six of the 20 victims were men. Well, yeah, because movies and TV shows, they only show women, especially, like, uh, Hocus Pocus was all women. Anytime there's a coven yeah. of any sort, it's yeah. always women. And I know it was definitely directed more towards women, and it was definitely... A sexist thing to accuse someone of being a witch, but I was just surprised to see. Society just makes us believe it was only women. Society is sexist. These women want rights? Witches. These women are out of line? (laughs) They're witches. In the movie, even Tommy says, when he's talking about witches aren't real, all the victims were young girls. And it's like, not a lot of them were. A lot of them were. Yeah. But a lot of them were. There were also six men. There were six men. There were some men. Wizards. There's wizards. To end our spooky special two-part episode, we tallied a total of six green flags and three red flags. So in our opinion, the autopsy of Jane Doe does pass in terms of forensic accuracy. And even in historical accuracy in some sense. As always, thanks for hanging out with us. If you enjoy our podcast, share it with friends and hit us up on Instagram to DM us with any show suggestions. We'd love to hear what you guys are interested in listening to next. We'll be back next week with a brand new dissection. Bye! Bye.